you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. I want to begin our time tonight uh, by, by reading this passage of Scripture. We're looking at verses 1 through 9. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. I'll read this, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. So Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, the voice of Jesus through the Scripture speaks to us like this. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they had said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table, and a woman came in with an alabaster flask of of, of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me with you. What she has done She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we we need you. We always need you. And we ask you now in these next 30 or so minutes together that you would would drive our minds to, to attention. You would call our hearts toward purity and toward listening and toward receiving from you. I pray you'd make sense of this passage, make sense of our lives, make sense of what you're doing and what you've done in the world, and um, move us, move us from wherever we are, one degree closer to following and chasing and obeying you. We confess, Jesus, tonight, even before we start, we confess that you're the best, that you're better, and we ask you really would help us believe that. We pray in Jesus' strong name, amen. Amen. Well, John Dobear and David Nietzscheman might not be names that you readily recognize. John was a, was a potter and David was a carpenter. These are ordinary men, blue-collar, hard-working guys. And in 1732, these two men set off on a mission trip to become the first Moravian missionaries. They left their homes, they left their jobs, they left the security of everything they'd ever known in Copenhagen, Denmark, and became the first Moravian missionaries. Now, the Moravians may not even be a group of people you've ever heard of before, but they were a group in Western Europe that were seeking religious freedom back in the 1700s from a really dark time of oppression in the Catholic Church. And so one morning on Sunday at church, John and David had heard a sermon about some of the slave trade during those times that was happening in the West Indies, and that many of these slaves would would live and they would die through the slave trade and never hear the gospel of Jesus. And so when they set off on their mission trip, it was not, not a little mission trip, you know, some sort of short-term vacation to Mexico or to the Caribbean or to Africa or to China. This was, this was something that they had heard this sermon, they'd heard about the slave trade and they were struck deeply, not with like this sort of thing where it was a sentiment level thing, but like a deep level thing where they would do more than just pray for these, these slaves in their community groups. They really felt it was the call of God in their life to go. And so they believed 
the only way to reach these slaves was not just to go to the West Indies. That would be one thing. But it was to go there. It was to sell themselves into slavery, become slaves in order to be with them, to be among them, in order to preach the gospel to them and die with them. And so as the story goes, in 1732, they they aborted a ship and they set off from the dock there and their whole family and their community and the friends and all their church was there to see them off. Everyone weeping there, still thinking about whether or not this was a good decision for them to make. They headed off from the dock there and it was still just a ways off and they could still hear them calling back to one another. And one of them raised his fist in the air and he says, worthy is the lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. And they sailed off into the ocean and they died there among the slaves. Now you hear a story like that. And I don't know how you're hearing that. I don't know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking that's a pretty strange way to begin a sermon. But you hear a story like that. And I don't know about you, but your mind can begin to wander into things going, man, would I ever do something like that? Like, could I ever picture myself being so committed to something that I would do something like that? Like, that sounds on the one level courageous. It sounds on the other level totally foolish. It sounds just completely bizarre. To some of you, you hear that and you go, that's so ridiculous. I would never do anything like that, right? But I think you hear a story like that and on some level you respond and you've got some questions about where you would find yourself or where you wouldn't find yourself in that similar place. Regardless of where you are tonight, regardless of how you hear that story, The question I want us to answer tonight and the question I want us to get after is not whether or not you would do something like that significant and sacrifice for Jesus someday out there. That's not the question I want us to answer. The question I want us to get at is not would you do something significant, but the question is, would you be willing to do whatever Jesus would ask of you today? Not someday out there, not something significant out there, but would you be willing to do whatever Jesus would ask of you today? in order to have more of him? Would you be willing to sacrifice whatever Jesus, whatever it is that Jesus would be asking you to sacrifice today, if it meant that in sacrificing that thing, you could have more of him present there in your life, more sense of him in your life, more more awareness of his movement, more awareness of his changing, if you would but give up whatever it is that he would ask of you today. Not someday out there, not some big thing, not some significant commitment, just whatever he would ask today that maybe you could actually join in at a deeper level of the lyrics we sang just a moment ago, that in every sorrow, in every victory, in all riches, he's actually better. Would you be willing to sacrifice that today? So in the passage we're looking at tonight, that's sort of the thing that's coming forward to us. There's a woman in this passage who was willing to sell everything, willing to to let go of everything, just simply to have more of Jesus. So when we open up to Mark chapter 14, in the beginning of the chapter, we take a a sharp right turn where we're picking up in the narrative toward uh, the, the last week in the life of Jesus. In the first two verses, the religious leaders are already sort of plotting how it is that they're going to get Jesus arrested, how it is they're going to kill him, how it is they're going to make this happen without an uproar among the people. And then in verse 10, down below our passage, they're already working with Judas Iscariot to figure out how it is they're going to betray Jesus from the inside in order to get him arrested. So in the middle of verses 1 and 2 in the plot to have him arrested and killed, and in verse 10, betrayal from the inside, in the middle of all that dark cloud of wickedness and deception, in verses 3 through 9, there's this really beautiful story of extravagant love and extravagant devotion to Jesus. 
So the story picks up with Jesus at a dinner party. He's hanging out with some of his closest friends. In verse 3, he's hanging out with some of his closest friends at a dinner party, sort of a Thanksgiving feast. You remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This had just happened, and it was sort of a Thanksgiving feast. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Hey, we ought to party. We ought to celebrate. And a guy named Simon the leper is holding the party, which, by the way, is a really bad nickname to have, right? Simon the leper. Like, you're forever known as a guy with skin disease, even though he'd already been healed. Simon the leper. Well, he's throwing the dinner party. And this would have been an amazing party to be at when you just consider the guest list and who was there, right? So you had Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. You had Lazarus. You had Simon, the leper. You had Jesus and his disciples. This would have been a phenomenal party because think about, again, that guest list. At the party, you had the host, a guy who used to have skin disease falling off all over the place. And then at the party, you had a former dead guy. Like an ex-dead guy, an ex-corpse at the party. And you also had an ex-tax collector, a former thief. You have a bunch of ex-sailors, and we know how sailors talk. And in the midst of all that, you have a guy who's walked on water and who's changed all their life. Like this would have been a bizarre party to be at. Can you imagine the conversations with this group of people in the room? I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, right? Can you imagine uh, Peter ask Simon, hey man, what's it like not to have your skin falling off anymore? I, I bet your dating life is a bit better now, huh? It's a bit easier to ask a girl on a date now, and I, I, ho- hopefully, hopefully the courting situation in this Jewish community is going better. Your skin, it looks better, man. Good job. And then you have maybe someone pipe up to Lazarus and say, hey, hey what was it like to be dead? Hey, and how much does it, how, how bad is it that you have to do that again? <laughs> At least I only have one go round of that mess, you know? And so they're going back and forth. All this is happening. All the while, Mary and Martha, they're in the kitchen. They're trying to get everything just right. These guys in the living room, they're, they're talking shop. These, these sisters are wanting everything to be right because after all, the guy in the other room just got their brother out of the tomb. And so they're wanting everything to be just right. And this is the whole thing that's going down. This would have been an amazing party to be at. What's fascinating about this party, the thing that everyone remembers is not the guest list, not the conversations, not the jokes that they probably told. What everyone remembers is something that happened in the middle of the party that changed really everything. And this is, this is where we pick up again in verses three and four. It says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table and the woman came to him, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask full of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. And some said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? So in the middle of everyone eating together and having a good time, reclining at the table, Mary walks in and she breaks this flask and she pours the ointment, this very costly ointment over the head of Jesus. And when this happens, you can imagine, right? Maybe you've been at a dinner party before and something totally out of the blue happens. Your sister makes a crazy comment. Your crazy uncle makes a crazy comment. Someone leans over and breaks something in the house that was a family, you know, like passed down from from the ages. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for that person. You just ruined everything. That's sort of what happened in the moment. Everyone's having a good time. She comes in, breaks this flask and pours this over the head of Jesus. Now don't hear that as some haphazard movement. This would have been immediately seen as an act of intense reverence and intense devotion. 
This, was, this would have been like a perfume that she would have poured out over his head. The aroma would have filled the room. And everyone responds to her with unbelievable disapproval. She sees this, they see this happening, and they respond to her. It says they were angry at her. They said indignantly, they started scolding her. And we find out why in the passage, because this ointment was worth a lot of money, 300 denarii. 300 denarii. So just to break that down, a denarii was worth a day's worth of wages. So it's what a day laborer would have got at the end of his hard day's worth of work from his employer. Here's a denarii. So 300 denarii, you track it out, right? That's a, that's a year's worth of salary. So this week, just to kind of translate that, how that works, I looked up the average income for, for residents in Oklahoma. The average annual income is $40,000, right? The average annual income, $40,000 for those in our state. So 30, 300 denarii translates our life, our context, $40,000, Forty grand. And in a moment of devotion to Jesus, she breaks it and she pours it over his head in extravagant love and devotion. Now, this is so crazy because in that cultural moment, this sort of, this, this flask that she had with all this ointment, this would have been, this would have been like an inheritance. This would have been like an heirloom passed down through generations. This was given to Mary and to Lazarus and to Martha. This was given to them by their family that in case something were to happen to them, in case something were to happen, in case a famine breaks out, in case an invasion happens and they can't work, they can't make any money, they have this as sort of a savings account. This would have been worth a savings account. This would have been something to fall back on to be safe. And she totally disregards what it had meant to her family for all that time, or maybe she has it all in mind, and she says, this is why it's so worth it. And she does this. See, what had happened in Mary in this moment, what had obviously happened for Mary in this moment, is she was starting to begin to see how much Jesus was worth. You see, Jesus was more to her in this moment. He, he was more than just some miracle man, some magician that got her brother out of the ground. She was actually beginning to see Jesus for who he really is, as her God, as her redeemer, as her life, as her deliverer. She interrupts this whole dinner party and she was making a statement really loud and really clear for everyone present there. She was showing something of the worth of Jesus. Jesus, you are the most valuable thing to me. And so the most precious thing that I have, I now give to you. What she was saying when she broke this flask and gave the the ointment there to Jesus to anoint him, what she was saying was, This thing used to be my security. This thing used to be my hope. This thing used to be the thing that would calm my fears when I thought about the future and whether or not I would be able to make it and make ends meet and and be able to fend for myself. This thing was the thing that calmed my fears when I looked toward the future and didn't know what was out there for me. At least I had this heirloom and this flask. I was going to make it. But when she does this, what she was saying is now all of a sudden, Jesus, you're my security. You're my hope. When I think about the future, you're the one who calms my fears. You are far more sure than this 40 grand could ever be to me. And so she pours it out over the head of Jesus. Now remember, when she does this, there's strong pushback against what she's doing. So now I have a question for us in the room. You hear that? You get the context, you get what she's done. And now I think that begs the question for us, right? So you're like, I don't have an alabaster flask. I'm not even sure I ever heard the word alabaster before tonight. 
But all of us have something in our life like that. Our sense of security, our sense of hope, our sense of something in our life that we grab onto all the time to calm our fears when we're going anxious and crazy with thinking about the future. What is that for you? Maybe you don't have pure nard, but what do you have? Is it a relationship? Is it your job? Is it your career? Is it a relationship that you wish you had? Is it your family? What is it that for you, if you lost it, you would lose all sense of security, you would lose all sense of stability, you wouldn't know what to do for yourself? What what, what is that thing for you? The question is, I think after reading this, you look at it and you think we all have to ask ourselves, what would it be like for you to give that over to Jesus and no longer trust yourself to define that area of your life or define that thing or control that thing, what would it look like for you to give that over to Jesus and say, you now get to define that? You now get to control that. That's yours if it means I get more of you. What is that thing? I think it's a question that all of us have to, it's a big question to ask. What would it be in your life to give it over to Jesus and say, I don't have a plan B, If you don't hold me, I won't be held, right? It's a big question to ask, but I think it's it's worth asking, especially when you consider the the pushback that she got for doing this. When you consider what was happening in the room, this says that they they were mad because this could have been sold to the poor. 300 denarii was a lot of money. You could just sell that to the poor. And they started, they started coming at her with that. As It was so funny the way they did that because it's not as though they actually had care for the poor. In John chapter 12, we read the same narrative. And Jesus says, quit talking about your love for the poor as though that's what you're actually talking about. They were using that as some sort of political you know, correctness to get Jesus on their side. Clearly, clearly Mary's the one who's financially responsible. Clearly the one she's crazy in this moment, Right? So you can imagine the silence in the room, the awkwardness in the room when Jesus turns around after they yell at her like this and he rebukes not her, but them. He says that what she's done is a really beautiful thing. So even before we move on, I want to ask you one more question. Not just what's your alabaster flask, your sense of security and your hope and thing that calms your fears. When's the last time When's the last time you did something out of just intense devotion for Jesus that everyone around you thought you were a fool for doing so, but in your mind, nothing else made any more sense? When's the last time? When's the last time that doing something out of devotion, not trying to earn something, not trying to show off, not trying to sacrifice something to get God to love you. Look how much I love you, God. Now, will you give me back? Just, I, I know that you love me. And just out of my pure and honest devotion for you, you're compelled out in a certain way to speak up in a moment, to give something away, to sacrifice something, to step out as a witness. For, I, I don't know what, when is the last time you did something out of devotion for Jesus? that everyone around you thought you were a complete fool. But for you, nothing else made more sense. Nothing else made more sense. Let's get back to the passage because in verses six through eight, we get Jesus' response to those who rebuked her. It says this in verse six. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And she has done what she could, and she's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, 
Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so Jesus comes back and he says, hey, quit talking about the poor. Listen, let's get to the heart issue. You have a problem with this kind of awkward devotion to me. You think it's awkward at least. This is what you have a problem with. And then in verse 8, he says that she did this because she recognized his death was coming. She was doing everything she could to prepare him for burial. And so again, can you imagine the silence in the room? You could have probably heard a pin drop there in Simon the leper's house when Jesus responds to them that way. And can you imagine then someone else trying to break the silence after they get rebuked like that by Jesus, whose hair is now all shiny from the ointment? It would have been just a bizarre moment. And surely they step up and they say, oh, we, we didn't mean it like that. We, 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 Mary, we love you. Bless your heart. That was, that was great. Thank you for doing that for us. It would have been a crazy moment. But consider all that was happening and what Jesus said here against all of the, of the, of the wildness there. He says that she did everything she could to anoint him for his burial beforehand. So here's, here's the question I want us to ask now as we end the night together. How did Mary know that Jesus was about to go toward his burial? How did she know that we're entering now into the final week of his life, that everything he had been saying about his death and resurrection was true? How did she know? And then everybody else at the dinner party was clueless. They were clueless. Everyone else was clueless about his coming death. Everyone else was clueless about his resurrection. He had been talking about it for a while, but everyone else was clueless. The only one who's clued in that recognizes what's going on here, that the dinner party is a really big deal because Lazarus is alive, but it's a really big deal because of what's coming for Jesus who just did the Lazarus thing. She's the only one who knows. How? How? Like, how was her faith so rock solid in everything that Jesus had been talking about that though she hadn't seen it and though the resurrection stuff sounded really crazy, that she really believed all of it such that she's going to blow 40 grand over his head in a moment of devotion to him? How did she know? You see, it's a really big question to ask, right? Because I think if, if we're honest, like that's where most of us live in the crisis of our faith. We're asking the how question. Because I could give you a story like I did at the beginning of the night of a couple of missionaries who did some, some crazy stuff, left everything that was, that was normal and secure and familiar to them. I could give you stories like that. I could give you a story like this of someone sacrificing something great for Jesus. You could think about even your own life in areas where you want to grow in Jesus, right? Love that you have for Jesus. You hear a story like the missionaries. You hear a story like this. You have your stories in your own life and the question you keep asking is, how? How do I do this? Like, how do I get there? I want to get there. I want to love Jesus. But Mary's, got, Mary's doing something here. Mary's got a hold of something here that, that I'm asking the how question. I want to join her, but how? Like, how do I join Mary? If you've got a Bible, roll back to Luke or roll forward to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10 gives us, I think, a window into what was happening with Mary and with Jesus, that shows us that she's not just some super Christian. She's normal, just like us. And there's something about her life that shows us how we can join her in all of this. Really familiar passage of scripture, Luke 10, 38 through 42. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village 
And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion. She's chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Did you see what was going on in this passage? Did you see where Mary was? Did you see what Mary was doing? She was at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching, listening to him there. Apparently, there was a lot that needed to get done in this moment. So it wasn't like, Mary, you're able to say, well, I'm much busier than Mary, and you know, I've got some stuff to do. No, no, no. Mary had stuff to do. Stuff needed to get done. She had a busy life too. And apparently, in the midst of all of that, she also found some space in the midst of crazy to sit at the Lord's feet and give her whole life to his teaching. Now, here's what's crazy. It's not like Mary at the feet of Jesus is just a Luke 10 moment. If you actually read through the Gospels, you'll find this was a regular thing for Mary. So Luke 10, we find her here listening to the teaching of Jesus. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus dies, Jesus shows up. Before he gets him out of the ground, Jesus shows up. And what does Mary do? The first thing she does, she sees Jesus coming. She runs to him. She throws herself at his feet, and she weeps in sorrow and in grief and anxiety and in fear at his feet. And then a chapter later, in John chapter 12, the same narrative of Mark 14, but John's version, she anoints him with the oil. The oil falls from his head down to his feet, and she then is there at his feet, worshiping him, wiping his feet with her hair. So you, on the one hand, see Mary listening to his teaching. On the other hand, you see Mary grieving and sorrow and anxiety and in fear. On the other hand, you see her worshiping, and you see her consistently doing this at the feet of Jesus in a posture of submission and a posture of devotion and a posture of worship and a posture of trust. This was consistent for her. This was consistent. And so it's not like Mary just showed up one day and was like, you know what I want to do? 40 grand seems like a good idea. I'm not even talking to my brother and sister about it. I'm just going to do it. No, 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 no. It wasn't about Mary showing up one day doing something significant. There was lots of little moments. It was the trajectory of her life to be there near to Jesus, to hear him, to understand him, and to know he wasn't talking crazy. It was actually real. And she wanted to do all that she could to anoint him beforehand. Okay, so what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Because I think there's some of you in the room that you hear this and that you're thinking to yourself, okay, so here's what I got to do now. I got I to gotta just give everything to God and I got to get at his feet and every day I'm just going to listen to him and then all the questions I have about the will of God for my life, where I'm going, what I'm supposed to do and all the passion of the Christian journey is just going to unlock for me. The type A person in the room, you know? You hear, okay, I'm going to check Mary off my box and I'm going to do just like her. No, if, if that's what you hear tonight, if what you hear is a to-do list that you've got to do more stuff in order to unlock all of this, you've missed it. And I also don't want you to hear that God is just waiting around for you to give me 40 grand. That's not what this is about either. We just talked about missional movement. This isn't a missional movement ploy. This is not about $40,000. This isn't a to-do list. Listen, 
If what you're hearing about tonight and what's going on here is I've got to do more stuff, you've missed it. Jesus has not given us his word to give us a list. Jesus has given us a word to put bread in our mouths, to nourish our faith, right? So what all this is about is this. Not one of us in the room stumbles into godliness. No one like wakes up one day and all of a sudden they've moved from here all the way over to here and their love and their affection and their obedience and their devotion to Jesus. That's not how the Christian journey works. So we want more obedience. We want more freedom from addiction. We want more ongoing life with him in prayer. We want more mission. And we just keep waiting for something magical to happen inside of us. It doesn't work like that. It didn't work like that for Mary. The way it worked was the steady moving along with Jesus, the intake of his word, sitting at his feet, giving back to him ongoing life through prayer and through speaking back to him, living in community with his people, celebrating, having feasts together, eating and remembering Jesus. And all the while, Holy Spirit is cultivating something in her. And all the while, when you and I do the same, intake of his word, ongoing life in prayer, living with his people in community, celebrating, living on mission, all the while the Holy Spirit cultivates in you and I too, love for him, obedience to him, desire for him, willingness toward him, freedom from old things that used to define us. Now new things begin to define us because new affections rise up because of a steadiness of a trajectory, not a magic moment where he unlocks the the master lock. No, it's a steadiness. And here's, here's what's interesting about all this. I think Mary would attest to this if she were here tonight. The change that you want in your life, the change that I want in my life, these new affections, they come much more slowly than any of us would like. There are times we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. Some of you hear this and you're like, I've tried that before. There are times we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm just going to be honest with you. It feels like it's a waste of time. It feels like it doesn't work. It feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and it feels like nothing is moving. But I want you to notice again, verse 42. Look at what Jesus says. This is where I've been challenged and thinking about this for me all week. It says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. Here's the translation of what Jesus just said. Sitting down with me is never an empty exercise. Sitting down with me is never a fruitless activity. There are all kinds of things in your life, in my life, that we busy ourselves with that are taken from us all the time. But there's only one thing that will never be taken away from us. There's only one thing that will last and remain. And here's what Jesus is saying in the translation bottom line. He's changing us all the time when we get there with him, even when we can't feel it even when we can't see it. Through all the confession assurances that we do on Sundays, he's changing us all the time as we engage with him, even when it feels like we're still hung up on the same old things, he's changing us. You see this in the trajectory of Mary's own life. And so listen, coming to the feet of Jesus, this is so massive for me, and this is changing so much in my own life with Christ. Coming to the feet of Jesus is not about him asking something of you. Coming to the feet of Jesus is about him giving something to you. You see that from Mary? Did did Jesus ever ask anything of her in those passages? 
She sat listening. She sat there grieving. And she sat there worshiping. Jesus was not making any demands of her. But increasingly, she wanted to give everything. That's a whole different view of God than most of us have. Getting at his feet is not about him asking something from you. It's about him giving something to you. Getting to the feet of Jesus is not about you mustering up love for him. It's about you slowing down to listen enough to say, I've already loved you first. Getting to the feet of Jesus is not about giving your life away. Getting to the feet of Jesus is about seeing that he's already given his life away for you. Getting to the feet of Jesus, one more, I think, to help us. Getting to the feet of Jesus is not about you taking that most precious thing in your life and saying, okay, I've got to, I've got to get rid of this in order to please him and finally have him and get more of him. I've got to break my alabaster flask. No, 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 no. Getting to Jesus is about seeing that God already broke his treasured son for you first to make you his sons and daughters. He's the one who breaks things first. It was his own body, his own blood to make a way that we could see the lamb who was slain really is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering.